if I could invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, we're going to spend some time there this morning. And as you are, let me just mention, uh, I find it fascinating uh, with the way our society has gone, just the concept of having family traditions seems to be, you know, kind of falling away. Uh, families spend less time together, uh, even the definition of what family is has changed significantly. And yet when it comes to Christmas time, for some reason it just seems like Christmas traditions haven't all disappeared. They might be changed a little. Uh, maybe you've got kids in your home and you know, you're preparing uh, for a Christmas morning or these great gifts that might be given. Um, perhaps your kids are grown and out of the house and have their own families and it's a little more difficult you travel to them maybe uh, to see them or your grandkids or you gather them all together like uh, Michael and Cindy do their tradition you know a week or two before Christmas is to try and get everybody together and just spend some time together as a family I know for Patty and I uh, traditions aren't always the best memories I you know I'm a little strange so I remember when my sons were small uh, the church we attended had Christmas Eve services that ran late into the evening, like the last service would be at 10 o'clock at night or 10.30, and I always drew the short straw and had something I needed to do at that service, and we'd get home at 11 or 11.30, and I still have these vivid memories of Patty sitting on the floor with rolls of wrapping paper and boxes, wrapping presents until 2 o'clock in the morning so that when the boys got up at 7 or 8, there were gifts uh, under the tree. I also remember that when I came anywhere close to her to wrap a gift, she kicked me out of the room because <laughs> I wasn't that good at it. She did let me get my uh, toolbox out, though, to put toys together. So wh whatever your traditions are, uh, we're going to take a look this morning at moving back from that and looking at the Jewish traditions, the religious traditions of the first century. Uh, they were a traditional people uh, there's something in us that wants some stability in the way that we live our lives. And this idea of tradition kind of brings that uh, forward to us. And I'm going to kind of pick up right where Christy left off. Uh, if we go to the very center of the story about Zacharias and Elizabeth and the birth of John the Baptist, in verses 21 and 22 of chapter 1, here's Here's what we're exposed to. Let me just read it for you from the New American Standard if you want to follow along in your own version. Uh, just know this is the inspired one, as Michael says. <laughs> so, and the, the people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and he remained mute. Now, one of the things that is important for us to understand is we're in Jerusalem. This is, you know, the temple, and there's a certain practice there. Zacharias, as a priest, is inside the temple. At the end of the day, he would normally come out at a pretty well-prescribed time, and he'd issue a blessing to the people, and they would go their way. And the, the blessing might be something like this. I jotted down one of them that's recorded for us in Numbers chapter 6, uh, and it's one that you're probably familiar with. The priest would just stand in front of the people and say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. 
You see, this isn't that day. And this would make it not extraordinary, but awkward. You see, the people were prepared at a prescribed time for the priest to exit the temple. You know, the Jewish religion was one of order. This wasn't order. Something out of the ordinary had happened. It's, it's also a, a religion of predictability. You know, you could count on things happening at a specific time in a specific way. Neither of these things are true about what we're reading here in verses 21 and 22. Now, I find it fascinating myself that with very little detail, the people just simply note that Zacharias leaves the temple late and that when he does, he can't speak. And with those two bits of information, the folks draw the conclusion that he has seen a vision. Now, if we kind of step back into the first century, there's no iPad hooked to a digital projector that can then explain what happened to Zacharias inside the temple. He doesn't have a flip chart. All we know is that he's making these hand signals, the text says. So whether he's pointing at heaven or he's turning and pointing at the temple, we really don't know much about how he's getting the point across. But yet the whole crowd decides they've seen a vision. Kind of reminds me of one of our contemporary figures in society today when he recounts being part of something and he says, and everybody knows it, right? Everybody knows it. But what they don't know is what happened to Zacharias. And that's what I want to look at with you this morning. So if you would look back in verses 5 through 7, I want to read it for you and then just take you back to the first century and make a couple of observations about these verses. In the days of Herod the king of Judea, now you remember last week, Michael took us to understand Herod's tension that he came from a lineage that dated back to Esau and had a Jewish heritage, and yet he represented the Roman Empire and was the policy and political leader in this area. So we're reminded of that tension because we're going to see tension again with Zacharias and Elizabeth in just a moment. There was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Christy read that you know, for our kids when they were up here. Here's a couple of things I would just observe. Uh, Luke tells us that Zacharias' heritage is that he comes from a family lineage that he identifies as Abijah. Now, it's important for us, to, we probably don't know that name. It's important for us to connect the dots here. That would make Zacharias, uh, his lineage, it would take you back to Levi, Aaron, if you will, and he would come directly from that lineage. That's a really important lineage for the Jews. Uh, and if you're at all a historian, one of these Bible study students that you know, gets caught up in, okay, so what's all about that? Let me just give you a couple of headlines. There were 24 families in all that ultimately pre the priesthood came from. Uh, and that was an ordered practice, even up until the point when the Jews were exiled to the Babylonian captivity. And then, if you remember, Ezra came back to Jerusalem and he rebuilt the temple, and he was very, very careful to reinstitute the priesthood exactly the way 
that David and Samuel had put it in place from the very, very beginning. Those same 24 families. Now that's interesting enough, but let me fast forward with you for a second. Many historians would say at about this time in the first century, those families had grown, if you will, across generations, and there might be amongst the 24 families 15 to 20,000 priests. Big number. Which would mean that in every one of these families there could be three or 400 priests. Zacharias is the one chosen out of those three or 400 to come to Jerusalem and serve inside the temple. And there were only five priests inside the temple. There were many on the outside doing a lot of different things for the people in the temple complex. Zacharias's role was to tend the altar of incense. Now the thing that I would like to start with this morning as we unravel this is to understand first, God is with us. And he's with Zacharias from the very beginning. You see, here's a guy that in a family of three or 400 priests, the text tells us in Luke chapter one that they cast a lot. And through that lot, Zacharias was chosen to be the priest. This is no small thing. Dream for a minute if you're a guy here in the room and you're thinking about the dream job, the thing you always wanted to do, the thing that if it happened in your lifetime, I'm done, we're good. We can move on now. This is that kind of thing for Zacharias. He's chosen out of so many to serve God in such a specific way. If you wanna learn more about that, it's really an interesting story that's, that's laid out in 2 Chronicles chapter 23 and 2 Kings chapter 11. And I would just suggest it's worth you know, just kind of giving a look. But let's move on. There's something else here in this, these short three verses that Luke lays out for us. And it's about Zacharias and Elizabeth's marriage. This can be a little bit of a touchy subject for all of us, so let's just look at the text for a minute. Here's how he describes their marriage. He says that they were both righteous in the sight of God and walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Let's just pause for a minute and reflect for a second about if you happen to be married here, your own marriage. Imagine for a moment that that's how God saw your marriage. Better yet, imagine for a moment not only did God see your marriage that way, but your testimony in the community was one of that, that you were seen as righteous and blameless before God. I mean, this is what we're being told here by Luke is true of Zacharias and Elizabeth. But there's more to this story that makes it even more important and interesting. And that is this. In verse seven, Luke says to us, and they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. Now, isn't it interesting? If you're a lady in the room here this morning, you probably get this quickly. Spotlight on Elizabeth. It's her fault they don't have kids, right? Let's just identify the woman. Now, I would imagine here in the room, there are some couples that have struggled to have children. And it's hard to answer the question, why doesn't God always bless in that way? And, and we're not gonna answer that for you this morning other than to make this observation about Elizabeth. 
In this culture, it was even a more significant issue because in this culture, there was shame associated with not being able to have children. You see, the Jewish folks practiced what the forefathers taught them, and that was that one of the things God did for those people that were faithful to follow him was bless them with children. And if you were blessed with a son, then that, that was even an extra blessing. So Elizabeth lived in an environment where there was actually shame associated with the fact that she was singled out as the one that was barren and there were no children. And yet, think again about how they are described from a faith perspective. They were righteous and blameless before God. You see, it's interesting, and I think this is a great place for us to start in kind of taking the text and driving it down to ourselves. Their circumstances did not diminish their faith. It was in their circumstances that their faith grew, that they began to understand that God was at the center of their faith and they weren't. And I think that's something important for us to consider as we think of our own lives and the story that we're told here about Zacharias and Elizabeth. But let's move on to verse 11. Verse 11, we're introduced to an angel, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. Now let me just give you a couple of backdrop comments about the altar of incense. If you're familiar with the temple, this altar sits right outside the Holy of Holies on the outside of the curtains that come down that protects the Holies of Holies from man. It's Zacharias' job to minister there. They would burn incense twice a day in their ritual practice, one earlier in the day and one towards the end of the day. We're not really given any information about which occurrence this is when Zacharias meets the angel, but it's likely it's later in the day because we're told he's late coming out of the temple. So it's possible that this is the afternoon time of burning incense. There's so much that we could talk about on that burning, but I want to give you one that just strikes me as I was preparing this week, something that just kind of hit me between the eyes. Uh, When we think about Jesus' birth, which Michael is going to, you know, really kind of focus on with us next Sunday, I remember the gifts that are brought to baby Jesus are the kings. Remember that? Well, think about this for a second. What were the gifts? This test. What were the three gifts? Gold, okay. Frankincense. Myrrh, three gifts. Good, you guys passed. You can stay. Okay. All right, how about this? The altar of incense is completely covered in gold. The incense is a very specific recipe that God establishes. It's a great thing uh, to look at. And what do you think is the basis of the incense? Frankincense. And during the course of things, as these practices happen, there is a a, process that they go through to see that everything is clean before God, before they use it. What do you think they use to anoint everything inside the temple to see that it's clean? Myrrh. There is nothing in God's word that isn't impactful. Gold, 
frankincense and myrrh. That's free. We're going to move on past that one. Look at Luke verses 19 and 20 in chapter 1. We now get the name of the angel. It's Gabriel. Now, it's, it's interesting. We meet Gabriel three times in the Bible, if you are a Bible student. The first time we meet him is with Daniel the prophet in the Old Testament. We meet him here with Zacharias, and then in this very same storyline, uh, he appears to Mary. Uh, so there's three times that he's spelled out as Gabriel. All three of those times, there's a very similar reaction to the individuals that meet Gabriel. Uh, they're startled. Some of the text that says they're actually full of fear. In Daniel's case, he falls to the ground as if dead and puts his face to the ground. He's so impacted by Gabriel's presence. And I would say that Luke gives us an insight to that in these verses. Look at how he describes Gabriel. I am the one who stands in the presence of God. Now what must be true of that? I mean, man can't because of our sin. So in Gabriel's case, he's the one that's standing between man and God at this point as his emissary to mankind. And he has come to tell Zacharias what is about to happen in his life as a precursor to the coming of Messiah. But a problem arises here. The text tells us Zacharias doesn't believe. I mean, I can't imagine this happening and then calling into question what the angel says, but here we are. Zacharias questions it. And as he does, let's just kind of run through the storyline. The angel tells him that he's going to be a mute, right? This sets the stage for verses 21 and 22 as he exits the temple. And if we summarize this little piece of scripture so we can move on at just a high level, uh, the practice that each family had would be to come to the temple for two weeks and serve as a priest. You know, the Jews practiced a lunar calendar. There were 51 weeks in a year. Three of those weeks were special occasions. Anybody want to guess at that? Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of the Tabernacles. So they'd isolate those three weeks. Everybody came to Jerusalem for that. So it was kind of like all priests were on duty during those three times. And then they'd set up a schedule based on 48 weeks for the 24 families. And that's where you get that they came in practice for two weeks. So at the end of the two weeks, Elizabeth and Zacharias go home, the text tells us. Elizabeth becomes pregnant. During this time, Zacharias still can't speak. Can't imagine what he's going through now because he already knows that what the angel said is true and he messed up. Text also tells us that they stayed secluded for about five months. Then we're introduced to the story of Jesus. And in in the story of Jesus, we get to see that Mary has now an interaction with Gabriel who sends her to go meet her relative, Elizabeth. And at that point in time, when she meets her relative, look in, in verses 36 and 37 of chapter one, Gabriel announces her pregnancy. He declares something that is important that we don't miss. Remember, I started with this idea that God is with us. Here's the second thing that really stands out for me in this text, and I hope for you. He declares absolutely nothing is impossible with God. 
Now we've gotta believe that he's referencing the fact that Elizabeth was able to become pregnant even though the way the text reads, it would be, it would be that she's become pregnant after her childbearing years at a time when it would seem impossible for her to have a child. And Gabriel declares this, nothing is impossible for God. You know, I stop and reflect on that for a second and say, what, what are we really learning about God in this? What, what can we take away for ourselves? And three things strike me. that With nothing being impossible for God, that must mean that he's active in our lives. You know, maybe you just say, God is a God of blessings. He brings blessings to us. You know, this time of year is a great time to consider that. I would contend that very often God blesses us and we don't even notice. We're so busy living life and moving on, we don't take a moment to consider the grace that he brings into our lives. Albeit, we're quick to complain when things don't go our way, right? But we miss God's blessing. Second thing I would say is the other thing this text is teaching me as I look at this is it's really all about God's timing, not ours. You know, we're quick to say we're praying about something, but we lose interest. Maybe we even get upset because a prayer doesn't get answered. Uh, certainly Elizabeth and Zacharias would be able to understand that. They spent a lifetime waiting for a child, and then their physical bodies weren't even able to have a child. And yet, because nothing is impossible with God, God intervened there and did the impossible. You see, his timing isn't ours. I would just suggest to you, it's interesting. If we could somehow get our mind around the fact that while God is here with us right now in this very room, he's experiencing our tomorrow. We don't have to worry about tomorrow because God's already got it figured out. The question is, are we willing to live in this today and trust him with tomorrow? And that's the lesson, I think, for us that Zacharias and Elizabeth are learning. In verses 41 and 40 through 43, we get to see something else. Here now, Mary joins Elizabeth, and two things happen. The first thing is that the baby leaped in her womb. The baby would be John. John recognized that Mary was pregnant with Messiah. I mean, that's what the text is implicating for us. And we're also told that at that very point in time, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, in in that moment, as the text says that, look at what she declares. Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. How has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Here's the first declaration of knowledge of the coming Messiah. And it's Elizabeth, the wife of the priest that's a mute. Interesting storyline how God works on these things. You know, there's a really great section of text between verses 46 and 56 where Mary responds to Elizabeth's declaration. In, this in and of itself is a great devotion for you to think about for this week as you're uh, working through the Christmas time. And I, I won't go into that other than to just make this observation. From a historical point of view, the text says Mary stayed with Elizabeth right up until the point in time when she 
was going to have John. So let's just move on. In verses 57 through 63, John's born. Zacharias is still mute. There's some controversy over his name. And, you know, there's a lot of folks involved in that controversy. We're told it's family and friends in the community that have something to say about that. Names are kind of fun, huh? I don't know how it was in your family with picking names. Uh, Patty and I grew up at a time where it wasn't all that important. It was like, let's get a name and move on. When, you know, my sons were growing, here's where I embarrassed them again, so I'll hear something later today. Uh, I have 11 grandkids, Patty and I do, and uh, our oldest turned 16 on December the 7th. And yeah, so there's a new driver out there on the roads. Be careful, be careful. Uh, And he's, you know, he stands about this, tall above me and he's not just a little short 200 pounds and he likes football a little bit and he, he gets to play on defense and you know he likes that linebacker spot so he's you know he's his name is spelled k-y-t-n i love it you know because when the announcers on the field talk about him they go kitten wolf right kind of doesn't fit but his name was picked by my middle son and it's just a made-up name. But, but here's something to be reminded of. Isn't it interesting? You make up a name for your kid, and over time, there's a personality associated with that name. And now there's meaning to that name. That'll never go away. And I'll tell you that my grandson, Kitan, I will always know him as the gentle giant, the kindest young man you'd ever want to meet. Put him on a football field, not so much. He looks at me and he goes, Papa, I just like to hit people. <laughs> now, I say that to say there's so many things in this text that, that, you know, we could look at, but one of those things is names. Here it is. John is born. There's an argument over his name, but do you remember how the, the angel Gabriel at the beginning of the text said, his name shall be John. Zacharias and Elizabeth didn't have a choice. They were given his name. So now, Zacharias does surface and explains to everybody that his name is gonna be John even though they don't have a relative with anything similar to that kind of name. And the minute that he does it, his voice returns. And if you, if you look in the text beginning in verse 67 of chapter one, all the way through verse 80, we hear now the rest of the story from Zacharias. He's speaking now. And this is where we'll bring this thing to a close this morning. Much like the experience that Elizabeth had, the text now tells us that Zacharias is filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth's role was, was to acknowledge to Mary, who was miraculously going to bring forth Messiah, that she knew, John knew Messiah. Zacharias' role in this story is to announce to everyone that his son John would be the one to announce the coming Messiah. So here's this beautiful storyline. I I just want to acknowledge a couple of things. Look in verses 76 and 77 with me. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Now, this is, this is at the birth of John. This is before 
his ministry begins. Actually, verse 80 says, and the child continued to grow and become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So this is a prophetic statement that is now being delivered by Zacharias. And embedded in the middle of this prophetic statement are words that come from the prophet Malachi. Now, again, if you're a Bible historian, Malachi is the last prophet to speak in what we call the Old Testament times. In our canon of the Bible, Malachi ends, the gospel writers begin. There's a period of about 400 years where we have no record of any other prophecies. Now, there are some historical records that didn't make it into the canon, but from a point of our biblical canon, Malachi is the last prophet to speak. God's been silent, per se, to the Jews. Here we are, He's no longer silent. He chooses not to be silent by coming to a priest out of a large number of priests and he uses him to bring forth a son and he uses him to declare that that son would be the forerunner to Christ. Let me read to you what what Malachi says at the end of his book in chapter four, five, and six. He says, behold, I'm gonna send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Malachi was looking forward to the return of Elijah the prophet and that in fact in that return would be the announcement, the final announcement of the coming Messiah. Interesting, I think, uh, one of the things that Jesus says about John, look at Matthew chapter 11. In verses 11 through 15, he says this. This is Jesus now speaking. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. I mean, this is kind of a, this is a pretty profound statement. No human being born is greater than John the Baptist. Is John the Baptist significant in the Christmas story? You bet. Because he is given a profound responsibility. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says in verse 12, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the laws prophesied until John. If you care to accept it, he himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now Jesus wasn't suggesting that John the Baptist was the reincarnation of Elijah. What he was saying was that he was the prophetic resolution of the statement that Malachi made. He was the representation of Elijah. He was what Malachi was talking about that in fact, what we learn here about John the Baptist in the beginning of his ministry is that he is the one that is to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. He gets to talk to them that the temple practice of forgiveness is no longer what will be necessary with the coming of Messiah. He tells them to look for salvation through baptism and the forgiveness of their sins. And this is where 
Luke ends the storyline as he moves to the birth of Messiah. Let me just wrap this up for you and leave you with these three thoughts. God's always with us. God is always with us. If you claim faith, God is always with you. But it takes something to. It takes us to believe. It takes us to trust. It takes us to be willing to wait. It takes us to accept that we're not the center of God's universe, God is. That's what it takes. Christmas is a great time to consider that because it's the birth of our Messiah and he is the center of all things. Second thing I'd say, I wanna say what the angel Gabriel said. Nothing's impossible with God. I don't know what your circumstances are. I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know what God has planned to come to you tomorrow. I don't know how many more breaths God's gonna give me, but this I know. He did the impossible. He took me and he gave me faith and he made me his and he adopted me into his family and he has promised me eternity in his presence. See, nothing's impossible with God. He resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead as the victor over death. And because of that, we too are resurrected to eternity because of our faith. Here's the third thing. It's God's plan. You know, we live at a time where we like it to be our plan. We got it figured out. We got it mapped out. We got the steps down. We've made the investments we need to make. We've saved the money we need to make, or some of us have spent the money that we've made. It's God's plan for us. The question for each of us to consider this Christmas season is, is that enough? Is God's plan enough? You see, next week, we're gonna, we're gonna come together and we're gonna, we're gonna hear of the birth of Messiah. Remember what the angels called Messiah? Emmanuel. What's that mean? God with us. Leave this morning knowing God is with you.